From DLA Piper, this is the Beyond the Curve podcast. In this episode, DLA Piper's Tom Era speaks with Mike Sepso, co-founder and CEO of Index, and Sarah Needleman, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, about the pandemic's effect on the esports industry. Hello and welcome. I'm Tom Era, partner and co-chair with DLA Piper's Entertainment Finance and Transactions Practice. The world we are living in today brings immense challenges across political, social, and economic realms. As the world continues to grapple with the COVID-19 pandemic, the gaming and esports industry has prevailed as a tremendous opportunity for many, and in some cases, a substitute for social interaction as we knew it. I am joined today by Sarah Needleman and Mike Sepso, who are two of the most knowledgeable gaming and esports industry experts to discuss this industry in these unique times. Sarah is a reporter for the Wall Street Journal who writes about the video game industry. She has covered esports closely and written extensively about the evolution of the industry, including its widespread popularity during the pandemic. Mike Sepso is one of the co-founders of and currently serves as CEO of esports infrastructure startup Findex. As some would say, Mike has been involved with esports since it's been called by that name, starting what effectively served as the first unified league for competitive video gamers nearly 20 years ago. Welcome, Sarah and Mike, and thank you both for joining me today to have this conversation. It's great to be here. Thanks, Tom. Good to be here. So Sarah joined the journal about the same time that Mike and his longtime business partner, Sundance DiGiovanni, launched their first independent esports league, Major League Gaming. Like much of technology, esports has experienced tremendous evolution since that time, but significantly, competitive video gaming or esports, which finds its roots in South Korea, has experienced a paradigm shift from independent leagues to publisher-driven leagues. I'd like to begin the conversation with perspectives on that evolution or paradigm shift and how it came to be. Mike, let's begin with your perspective. Yeah, I was in the midst of that transition for the industry myself personally, so my perspective is probably a little bit different, but came from creating MLG and being an ongoing third-party league, meaning just to back up, unlike traditional sports, Obviously, esports, the game itself, the activity is not public domain. It's somebody's IP. So as an independent league, we were continually faced with a impediment to long-term growth and sustainability by having to continually look for new IP to license or create some kind of relationship with the publisher or the rights holder in order to build a league around it. It effectively could never get more than a couple of years run rate through a license agreement or relationship to be able to build any permanence around that structure. Some of the publishers in that era, and we're talking 2012, 13, 14 era, had started to take a more active role in developing their leagues, but they were still sort of operated, even though the publishers were doing it, they were still sort of operated somewhat independently, meaning open tournament or open competition, almost like boxing or that kind of sport versus a true league sport. And I had this vision for a long time that if we could just own a game We could build a real franchise league model around it. That led to a bunch of conversations with Bobby Kotick, CEO of Activision Blizzard, who really had the same vision. And eventually Activision Blizzard brought me in to start the esports division and acquired MLG as a way to activate against that. So 
really, from my perspective, anyway, the inflection point from this Wild West era of somewhat disorganized value chain around esports moving to a fixed permanent league with franchise owners and markets and those things that are more familiar to a traditional sports model really happened in 2016 when after being inside of Activision Blizzard and working on this blueprint, we rolled out the Overwatch League, which was the first really permanent league that was launched and still is operated and controlled by a publisher. And it has owners who own the franchises in different markets. And that really ushered in a wave of that type of activity from the industry that still continues, but also a lot of external capital and players, especially from the traditional sports world, coming into the esports space because that type of structure created an institutionally investable commercial structure that made sense to people. I think that was a pretty big inflection point for the industry, but I'm always interested to hear outside opinion on that. I think I know Sarah's opinion, but it'd be great to hear that too. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. Actually, my time at the Journal goes back even further, goes back to 2001. I do think some of the origins of esports even go back that further. If you think about it, we've been having competitive video game events even before video games went online and look anywhere near like they do today. There's always been competition ingrained in gaming and by the very nature of the fact that it's many cases you're competing against another player. But I think aside from the relationships between the publishers and running their leagues and all the infrastructure around that, I think I would even step back and say the evolution of esports is really closely aligned with advances in technology. Mm -hmm. At some point in more recent years, we've just seen the spread of broadband and internet in the homes then there's the whole idea of communicating over the internet and integrating that to games, which we now have things like Discord that help facilitate that. Just as more people have gotten into video gaming in general, that natural competitive spirit that's always been there, even back to the television days, it's just formalized. And like you said, with the comparison to traditional sports, at some point, the popularity of competitive gaming just got so big that people started seeing those parallels to the National Football League or Major League Baseball and started saying, how do we formulate this? How do we take this popular sport, popular concept of video game competition and formalize it? It's really great to see that Activision Blizzard and the folks at Riot helped really make that happen. And then now you can see it's no longer just an idea. It's actually the real thing. I would echo that. We started MLG actually in 2002. And one of the impetuses for that was Sundance and I had seen the first Xbox ship and we had it and we were sitting there playing games of Halo competitively with friends. There was an Ethernet port on that Xbox. It didn't have Xbox Live yet, but it was really clear that the future of gaming was going to be social and competitive and that the internet was going to enable that. And so I completely agree with Sarah that really created a whole new thing. And even going back to that very late 90s, early 2000s, South Korean development of esports as the country's sport of the future, a lot of that started because the country really invested in the 90s pretty deeply into residential broadband and powering internet cafes as a way for people to see the promise of the future of internet. What happened was obviously kids took those internet cafes over and turned them into gaming centers. But that really was the origin point in many ways of modern esports. So I want to pick up on something you both said about how the esports leagues evolved away from the model that the professional sports leagues have to more game-driven leagues. Can we maybe talk about that a little bit and how that model 
is more suitable for esports and video gaming and whether that evolution will continue or we'll see a time where there will be some unified league formation. Well, I would think that unlike the other sports out there, there's just so many different games within the esports world. And there's only so many professional sports. It's a lot more siloed. And we've already seen that there's just only a handful of games that have emerged to attract audiences that are large enough to justify building a league and investing in all that infrastructure around it. But this probably will change over time. And we'll see some games that will have really lasting impact for years or decades, and others probably will fizzle out. But clearly, we're saying that League of Legends is probably one of the best examples of a game that's been an esport for many years and seems to have a really long runway ahead of it, though it's hard to predict for sure. Yeah, I agree. I tend to think of esports as not the next sport, but a whole parallel universe of sports, because lots of games over time will generate plenty of interest. Just think about how big the gaming player base is globally. You're talking really over a billion people already that are just playing. Growing. (laughs) Yeah. So there's plenty of room for lots of different leagues and games and activity. And everything is not going to be a fully fleshed out, franchised, permanent league structure like the NBA or the NFL. Some games warrant really big global competition programs, but they might not be permanent and lasting forever like a League of Legends or a Call of Duty League likely will be. What I think is interesting, though, is what's still being kind of figured out is if you are a big publisher like, say, an Activision Blizzard, that's an interesting structure. There are two games that have franchised permanent leagues, but they're able as a company to utilize the pre-existing infrastructure for the first one, Overwatch, to launch the second And theoretically, I think Activision still has the biggest portfolio of AAA game IP in the industry. They potentially can add more games to that portfolio, leveraging the pre-existing commercial and management infrastructure and resources without having to replicate an entire new system every time. So while it's not a single league that has multiple games in it, it's a big publishing organization that has a portfolio of IP and an infrastructure they're creating to operate those leagues. And they're still going to continue to refine that model. And a part of what my new company, Vindex, is doing is trying to help publishers like that gain the leverage to be able to build and create and operate leagues that way and create all the content around it and take the pressure off of the industry having to recreate 100% of the infrastructure to launch a new league every time by leveraging the picks and shovels part of the business as something that we've already created that's a platform to launch new leagues on top of. So I think as an industry, we're still pretty early in this. There's a couple of models that are clearly working. And I think the Activision case is one where the structure and the commercial competitive and legal structure of that system creates, in a way, momentum and success that will help drive the game itself forward too. So not just the league, but the whole thing works together, which is why I think it's really important that the publisher and the developer studio of the game itself be effectively the operator of the league too. It's too difficult to detach those two things. I think there's also this whole thing that's similar to traditional sports in that you've got the professional leagues, but then you're also starting to see in esports these junior leagues. You've got Super League Gaming and these companies that are creating these, like a little league version for kids after school. At least before the time of COVID, they would go to the movie theaters and play competitively Minecraft or 
Rocket League or whatever on this big giant screen. So that's a whole nether world within esports. And then the other thing that's almost ironic is you've got these sports simulators. You've got NBA 2K, for example, and then there's this whole entire league built around it that's aligned with the real traditional physical basketball game and the players. And you can see that every year there's a different roster, so it affects the game. And so that's something that keeps people hooked on a regular basis year after year. So you can sort of see the potential for longevity just in that genre alone of these simulation games and the celebrity that comes around it with the professional players on the actual basketball court and their integration with the digital players, which is really interesting to see. you got these big giant athletes who may be building relationships with these more regular sized folks who are competing behind computers. So that's a whole nother aspect of the esports ecosystem that's evolving. And we're still trying to figure all that out, but it's pretty exciting if you think about it. Well, and you touched on a really important point that I wanted to talk about as well, and that's athlete development, because that's one thing clearly in professional sports, every professional athlete, for the most part, started somewhere, whether it was in high school or transitioning to a minor league or a farm league. Baseball is a very well-developed farm and minor league system. Are you seeing that developing in a major way in esports for younger players as well as amateurs and then feeding into these leagues that have become prominent with the different publishers? I definitely think there's something to be said there, but one thing that's a little bit different between esports and more traditional sports is there's a bit of an age difference because in more traditional sports, there's the whole college basketball or football where you graduate to the point where you're in your early 20s and you're starting your professional career and it still ends early. But with video games, we're talking sometimes real tots here. And just last summer was the Fortnite World Champion. You saw a teenage boy take home the top prize. So I think they're being groomed to some extent right in their homes, in their bedrooms, and they're practicing and they're getting noticed. And because of the whole concept of live streaming and platforms like Twitch, they're getting noticed. And the young man who won that Fortnite competition, just a few months before he entered it. He wasn't even on an official team for Fortnite. He was just an independent player who started streaming and developing relationships with other players. And he got noticed. He got scouted that way. Not exactly how it happens in traditional sports because it's usually on the field and they're a little bit older. But generally speaking, it is the same concept. There is an opportunity to be groomed young and to practice and get noticed through lower level competition and then work your way up. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to be happening at a younger age level, which in itself, I would imagine, creates some obstacles because parents may be a little bit leery about the amount of time their kids are spending practicing an eSport, similar to other sports, but the potential to go professional as young as 16, 17 years old, it just doesn't really happen as often in traditional sports. Right, right. Except maybe basketball, right? <laughs> and Kobe Bryant. <laughs> there are always exceptions. Yeah, I would say what Sarah said is correct, but in some ways unfortunate. And it's actually the point of Index is to try to tackle some of these bigger structural issues that face the industry to help it mature faster. That talent development and fan development and minor league system and laddering concept that exists in traditional sports is the one area I would slightly disagree with Sarah on. It doesn't exist at all. And the career path of Boga, the 16-year-old that won the Fortnite World Cup last year, is luck. And we can't depend on luck to drive this industry forward. But we are seeing, though, I'm going to, a little devil's advocate, Mike, we are seeing esports get into high schools. They're starting to form leagues. It is going in that direction. It's still nascent. 
<laughs> I would agree with the trend, but no one's done anything organizational. And look, I've had a thesis about this for 15 years, which is based on what I saw happening in Korea in the early 2000s. The reality is what we're describing, I started playing organized baseball and basketball when I was seven years old. If I had been better at either sport, a coach could have sat me down and described my entire career all the way to Madison Square Garden or Yankee Stadium. And every step of the way, there would have been a deep level of infrastructure and increase in the amount of coaching and talent development and other things that happen. And majority of kids in this country go through some system like that and whatever organized traditional sport that they play it could be swimming and volleyball. It could be basketball and football. It doesn't matter what it is. There's deep roots and lots of infrastructure associated with driving that all up. What we have today is random chance. And yes, I agree that there are high school clubs and some even varsity teams and colleges and things like that, but they have zero connection to the actual pro leagues and there's no full laddering system. And if you're a really good seven or eight year old baseball or basketball player, you got a whole career ahead of you and you got a training program and facilities, which are critical, all of these things, none of that exists. And the question is why though? Well, because there hasn't been a commercial reason yet. Yeah. I think there is one now. So we've actually just did a pretty big acquisition over the summer. In the UK, there's a formula for this. And I liken it to the organizations that happen or some of the companies, the startups that have started to try to organize high school or even college, they're only doing it with software. So it would be like telling me or any seven-year-old as a t-ball player who really loves baseball in this country, this is great. We love that you love baseball. We have hours and hours of YouTube videos for you to watch about how to play baseball, but there's no diamond, there's no ball, there's no teammates. You just have to sit in your room by yourself and figure out how to play baseball. And then one day, hopefully somebody will see your YouTube videos and draft you onto a team and you'll play at Yankee Stadium. That's a ridiculous sounding concept, but that's literally what happened to Booga. And that's how <laughs> things happen in this space right now. One of the things we're trying to do is we found a great model for it, which sort of is the more organized Western tuned version of the South Korean PC Bang model, which is effectively how do you combine the programmatic take, meaning the leagues and the talent development, the structured systems, which you can do with software or on the internet, and match that with the actual physical infrastructure? Because one of the macro trends that's been happening in esports is hyper-localization, meaning the first stage of that was the Overwatch League being city-based. So there's a team that I'm a part owner of here in New York City. We've got a Call of Duty franchise and an Overwatch franchise, and that's a New York team. They have a New York fan base. It's inspiring kids in the New York market to really get into it and find an organized way to do it. So we're bringing the facility with the programmatic approach to that. We're putting actual pro-level experiences and physical locations in towns across the country, effectively bringing the baseball diamonds and the t-balls and the coaches into hometowns and then applying the scale of the internet and our ability to create the programming and connect it to the pro leagues and putting that into the physical locations too. Because I think that without both, you'll never really get there. But it takes a big bet. It's a lot of capital we're putting at risk. It's a pretty significant, complex operating environment. And it's still a very nascent industry. So not a lot of organizations willing to take that kind of a bet. But I think that's what it's going to take to further develop that kind of talent development system, and that laddering type of thing. The one thing I do disagree with where things are headed in the industry, I don't mean disagree with you, Sarah, but just general consensus is I don't think that esports will follow the traditional sports model of coming out of scholastic systems. While there are a bunch of high schools that have started esports teams, I think it's unrealistic for us as an industry, a $170 billion industry this year, 
to go to public school systems across the country and say, you guys should really invest capital in an esports center for your high school, just mm-hmm. like you do a basketball court or a football field. I just don't think that's going to happen. And this industry has the capability to build those things separately. Yeah, uh, Certainly sure. include the high schools in the scholastic systems, but somebody's got to put that infrastructure there first. Yeah, but I would argue, and I'm no expert in the infrastructure world, especially at the high school level, but I have to imagine that some of the costs aren't quite necessarily as high as they might be for a traditional sport in terms of the amount of space and real estate to get it done. But there's one other thing I think we're overlooking here that makes esports a little bit unique. And I'm not really sure how this plays into what we're talking about in terms of the grooming from very junior up into the pros. But let's not forget that with esports, you could be any gender, any height, any weight. When we talk about a kid wanting to be a professional baseball player, you say, oh, well, the odds are really hard. That partly, I mean, that's certainly true, but part of that has to do with not everybody's physically cut out to be a professional athlete. And when the esports world, it doesn't matter what you look like. You could be tiny, you could be big, whatever, it doesn't matter. And that's where I think there is some sort of leeway in terms of who could potentially be a breakout star. And yeah, it would be excellent if there was more of a structured system from early ages for kids to go to. But I think in the case of the young man who won the Fortnite competition, there's something to be said about the fact that you can practice from home. You don't need a facility and you don't need equipment and you don't need a certain body type to do it. So I think we have to keep that in mind when we're making a comparison. They're certainly not apples to apples. There's similarities, but there's going to be distinctions. I would agree completely with the gender neutrality and the physicality of it. I would say, though, that already we see two really important trends. One is visual acuity and reaction time, which are physical attributes, are absolutely critical and a gating factor to becoming a top esports player. And age plays a big factor in that, obviously. Age plays a big factor because mm-hmm. reaction time decreases over your lifespan. So by the time you're in your mid-20s, you're not anywhere near as fast as you would have been earlier on. And when you're talking about a game of microseconds, that's critical. The other thing I would say, though, is I disagree, Sarah, about the facilities and infrastructure. I think all you have to do is look at the fact that most of the top players who are sought after for top esports teams, especially in big games like League of Legends and Overwatch, people pursue Korean players because that infrastructure and those facilities have existed there for a long time very similar to Brazilian soccer players or Cuban pitchers or a variety of things where there is a really strong infrastructure and organized system that exists from very early years on. Those places tend to crank out highly talented players over and over and over again, completely correlated to how deeply that infrastructure is set up and how early it starts. And I think we see that now. Do you think, though, also it has to do with culture? I mean, some cultures seem to be more accepting of video games or esports. I feel like in this country, and this is just a sense that it's not seen as prestigious. You say you're going to be captain of your high school football team. That's very well received here, very commonplace and accepted and considered a matter of pride. To say you're an esports athlete, it's still a bit of a stigma here. I think that's part of the challenge. Certainly that's changing, but it's definitely not quite the same thing. And I think that's one of the hurdles, at least in the States and probably other parts of the world, for esports to break out and be more mainstream like other sports. So Sarah, are you saying that we won't see any esports champions become prom queens or prom kings anytime soon? (laughs) Look, we do have at least one celebrity gamer. Ninja (laughs) has certainly broken through the clutter. But for the most part, that seems to me a bit of an anomaly. And we're not quite there yet. Mm -hmm. I do think over time that will change. And especially right now with the pandemic driving interest in 
video games in general, I think that will help reduce that stigma over time. But that's just one of the other factors that I think of when I try to understand where's the future of esports and why isn't it quite as out there as traditional sports. So I totally agree with you, but I don't think that's an esports versus traditional sports thing. I think if you're the best soccer player in your high school, that's not anywhere near as cool or popular as being a mediocre football player. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a cultural opinion on sports in general. If you're a great soccer player in England, you're super popular. If you're a great baseball player in England, not so much. So Mm -hmm. I think we have that issue across the board in sports. If you're the quarterback of your high school football team, you're very popular, even if your football team's not very good. If you're the captain of your cross-country team, you're probably not as popular as the captain of the football team, even if you're winning the state championship. So I think that exists in sports in general, and 100% agree that is a cultural thing. And I think the fact that this grew up in South Korea, it has certainly gotten more cultural acceptance there. But I don't know that it was at its origin point more accepted than it has been here. We That's just a good question. To be we don't, yeah. About a decade and a half behind South Korea in the development. So I tend to think of it, what's the U.S. going to look like 15 years from now in terms of esports? Well, most of the publishers are here. Most of the leagues are originating here. Commercial sports is a much bigger business here than it is in the rest of the world. I think we have better long-term prospects for that. But I agree, the cultural view of it has to start to change. And I think people, personalities like Ninja, who, by the way, got to start in MLG as a Halo player, I tend to look at him and say, I remember when Tyler was a pretty good Halo player, but he certainly wasn't anywhere near the most popular or even one of the best. He just continued to build a persona and he's created a really interesting celebrity that's new. He's created a whole new channel. Now, there are a lot of pro athletes that are big gamers and love watching esports. And in fact, a lot have invested. Marshawn Lynch invested in Vindex. There's people out there that are big superstar athletes that love gaming and are helping to promote that as well. But I think Ninja is the first one that crossed over the other way. Yeah, it'll be really interesting. I wish I could hop into that time machine, but I have a five-year-old now, so she's got maybe 10 years is going to be a prime time for her, and by then she can be an eSport athlete, and it'll be a much easier rise for her than it will be for her predecessors. We'll make sure we get a belong center close to your house, Sarah, so that she can go there and start training. (laughs) I'm definitely looking forward to her becoming a superstar in some sort of eSport. Absolutely. Let's talk about something we touched on a bit earlier regarding the interest in video gaming and esports in particular, especially during these times of isolation due to the pandemic. As we mentioned earlier, competitive gaming has been around for some time now and endured other global as well as domestic occurrences, including the Great Recession. But has the pandemic impacted esports either negatively or positively? And has its popularity risen or waned in your views or experienced any particular evolutions during this period? Well, I'll tell you, right before the pandemic hit, I remember the Overwatch League was starting to really ramp up the live experience. And so I remember going, it was in New York City, I think it may have been Hammerstein Ballroom, and going there and the energy in the room was just amazing. It was packed and there was cosplay and everybody was just cheering and it was amazing. And I felt like, wow, this is incredible, such momentum. And this is the future of esports, these live events at these large venues. And then unfortunately, the pandemic happened and they shut that down. So while I think esports is still humming along relatively well, I do think that was an unfortunate timing when it was really starting to gain that momentum and people were starting to go to bars and watch 
the matches together just like they do with mm-hmm. traditional sports. So unfortunately, I think the pandemic has put a little bit of a dent in that momentum. But that being said, even before we had a lot of live competitions, it was always an online thing. And so people have resorted back to that. I imagine, and I could probably speak better to this, but it's made some challenges in terms of players getting together and practicing in person. And while these games are online, I have to imagine that being with your teammate and playing together is certainly a healthy way to bond. And maybe some of them are already quarantining or hanging out together and keeping that up. But that's been one negative, I'd say, or tailwind for the esports industry. But I don't think it's a big one. And I don't think it's something I would put too much weight into. So certainly something Sarah said is incredibly important, which is just like any other sport, it's really critical that when you're playing at the top, whether you're practicing or competing, that you be physically together with your teammates, but also with your competition. There's physical limitations even to the internet in these games. There's an actual difference between playing over the internet or playing in a local network. So that's one thing. The second thing, though, is just teamwork and communication and all of that stuff that exists in traditional sports is exactly the same in esports. There's no difference. So from that perspective, I know that most of the pro players over the course of the past six months dealing with COVID and remote competitions and things like that, it's been a huge challenge. And we're starting to see capability for now that the pandemic is somewhat at least more under control than it was in March, being able to get tested and get together in the houses or facilities that the teams operate. I think we're also, our belong facilities, the esports facilities that we have in the UK have been back open for two months now. And we've been able to create a very safe, socially distanced infrastructure inside those locations to allow for people to come in and play together. If you think about kids that have been locked in their houses and apartments for the past six or seven months and going to school purely online, remotely, and things like that, having the capability to go do something like play video games with their friends in a safe environment is really critical. So we do think, again, this is more backup for that localization trend that's happening in esports, but If you grew up in the 80s or 90s or before, gaming was mostly a solitary thing. For everybody that's grown up since then, gaming has always been a social and competitive thing. So the idea that you would do that without other people is crazy. And I think there is a natural draw for younger gamers to want to be able to game together in person, not just online through a headset. Or just watch the competitions together and and share that with other people. And like I said, that energy in that room at that last Overwatch match that I went to, I remember leaving it so energized. And then when the pandemic started, only a matter of a week later, I immediately started thinking about that and how, gee, I'm so glad I went to that last one because I think it's going to be a long time before I get to do anything like that again, which is quite a bummer. But fortunately, we do have YouTube and Twitch and we can still watch competition and we can use the likes of Discord to chat and emulate being in a room together. So if there's anything gamers have in common, it's tech savvy and the ability to take advantage of the latest and greatest to have a good time. So I think that's what a lot of gamers are doing and they can't get together esports at a stadium or inside a bar, but gamers are still getting together, still being very social, having a lot of fun and communicating through the live streams and having a good time overall. Well, before the rise in the popularity of the tournaments and attending them, Spotting gamers in the general public was already a rare occurrence, so (laughs) it was great that the tournaments were bringing folks together, and then the idea of team competition brought them together even more. But, of course, the pandemic has put everybody back into 
the era of solitary gaming, unfortunately. At the same time, as you say, Advent and technology, things like Discord, have made gaming a forum itself for just social interaction, not just gaming. That's one thing I wanted to maybe transition to, and that is we've seen a lot of these games and these game platforms becoming venues not just for gaming, but for everything from concerts and movie premieres and social gatherings. How are you guys seeing that evolving even at a more rapid pace since the pandemic? Because you really can't go to a tournament or go to belong gaming centers yet in the U.S. Mm -hmm. soon to come, of course. But how do you see that having advanced during this time? And what are the trends there? So I definitely see a lot more focus from the traditional media sectors, really specifically music, but also movies as well, trying to utilize these new channels, whether it's Twitch or being in Fortnite and things like that. I think it started as a trend to try to get in front of gamers because gaming has become far and away the dominant media platform. So if you want to reach younger audiences, you've got to integrate somehow into where they are, whether that's Twitch or Discord or Fortnite or other games. Mm -hmm. Those examples are the strongest. And I can tell you, since the pandemic, but even before, our company was part of creating those events. Marshmallow DJing inside of Fortnite being the first one that we did or the Millennium Falcon and J.J. Abrams in the game, or more recently, since COVID has hit, producing Twitch StreamAid, which had 75 different musicians play different sets on one long Twitch stream. And we're continuing to do more and more of that. So I think a lot of what we're seeing is we're getting asked to apply our expertise of bringing experiences into games or into platforms like Twitch and YouTube we're being asked to leverage that for traditional sports, for music, and for film in a way that's unique and different and very recent. Mm. And just before COVID, even, we had done a partnership with IMAX, which we'll get back to once theaters start to open up. But that's really mm -hmm. a two-way street. It wasn't just how do we get esports content onto IMAX screens. It was how do we also bring the quality and scale of IMAX into gaming experiences in gaming video content. Yeah, I think we're also seeing people adapt. I'm hearing about Roblox birthday parties. Kids create a private server and they get on, they celebrate someone's birthday. That's not something that Roblox set out to happen, but it's been happening. That's just one example of how people are adapting to the situation. But gaming is inherently a way for people to socialize and have a good time well before the pandemic. And now people are just saying, okay, I can't go anywhere how am I going to take advantage of what I know and what I enjoy? And they're coming up with these clever ways to engage with one another, like in the case of these birthday parties that I mentioned. So right. I think we'll probably see more of that. We didn't know how long this was going to last. I think a lot of us thought it'd be over by now. But as it continues and as we still need to be precautious, especially with flu season ahead, I wouldn't be surprised if we see more instances of people using games to celebrate birthdays or other milestones. Sure. Or just Friday nights, let's get together. And instead of doing a group Zoom call, we'll play a game together. And mm -hmm. would be surprised if we see more of that. It's certainly something I would enjoy more of myself. And the brands and the advertisers have really taken notice of that too. We've seen a number of them really lean into the space. Some for a number of years. State Farm has had a major partnership in esports for some time. Nike recently launched a big campaign. Are you seeing that as becoming another big frontier for brands and advertisers in light of maybe some of the trends we're seeing 
certainly on broadcast television or on online advertising revenues that have been impacted. How do you guys see that? That was something that was starting to happen in the months and were actually years leading up to COVID. I don't think mm-hmm. that's changed. I think that one of the challenges has always been that when you advertise on something like Twitch, it's real time. People say things and sometimes words come out of their mouth that they regret. And there's some concerns for advertisers to be affiliated with that. There's very little control over what happens. So that has been a constant concern for advertisers. And for the most part, I think the ones that have been comfortable experimenting it have been relatively satisfied and gone around with that. But for some brands, that is always going to be a concern. And I don't necessarily see that going away. Although we haven't had our first Janet Jackson moment yet in esports, so (laughs) (laughs) when that happens, maybe it'll really make the brands nervous, but we'll see. Not aware of that, but I have heard of some potty mouths and some inappropriate language come out and people have regretted it. But that's just one of the nature of live, that whether it be video game play or anything else, advertisers have always been nervous around live for good reason with the Janet Jackson example that you bring up. I think you got to make the distinction, though, between esports, meaning professional league content, versus somebody streaming on Twitch or creating a YouTube video. Those are very Absolutely. different things. And mm-hmm. there's an entire difference in brand safety when you're talking about something being produced by EA or Activision for one of their professional leagues or Riot versus any one of those players or just a general influencer on Twitch. And I think that's one of the things as this entire space has gotten much more interesting, both to the mainstream public, but also to brands and advertisers, to your point, Tom, there is still a tremendous amount of misunderstanding of what esports is because it's happening in parallel with a massive expansion. We've talked about Ninja several times today. He's not a professional esports player, he's a content creator, he's a big influencer and a celebrity. Right. He was, like I said earlier, a decent esports competitor back in his time, but he hasn't been that for a long time. He's been a content creator. And that's different. What Ninja does every day is entertain people. It's not really esports. He's not on a team. He's not playing in a league. All of those things tend to get lumped into one generic thing, and they're very different. Now, Ninja is an incredibly good bet for an advertiser or a brand to support or partner with. But there are thousands of other content creators who are less brand safe, to Sarah's point, where you're really taking risk, which is why I think that for big brands that are worried about brand safety, be the same thing. If you had a live mic on every football player in an NFL game, not many brands would advertise during NFL games. Right. That's what you're talking about in this scenario. In a real league environment, when you're broadcasting a major publisher's professional league, you're not having that. It's very brand safe and it's more accurately measured. And I think what the missing link here to really tapping into massive amounts of scale and ad spending, because certainly the audience is there, the content is there, the engagement is there. What's not there is data. If you buy a 30-second spot in the NBA finals, the next day you get a Nielsen report that tells you how many people watched it and what the demographic profile was. You don't see that out of the distribution channels that we have primarily in esports. You don't see it out of the properties. And frankly, I worked with Nielsen for many years to integrate them into this. And as far as we got was changing some of the metrics and being able to provide way down the road viewpoints on value that was created, but you're not getting that real time or even next day level of data yet. And that's a big problem the industry needs to take on and solve as well. And that opportunity may ultimately be maybe in, you mentioned content around the esports lifestyle and personalities, which in and of themselves are 
entities. And that probably discussion warrants an entirely separate <laughs> podcast, but it's a very interesting and very rapidly developing segment of esports and the esports lifestyle. So Mike, we've worked together on a number of these groundbreaking deals that you guys have done since you've launched Vindex, including, as you mentioned, the IMAX deal to bring those tournaments to the IMAX experience. And there's a lot obviously happening and a lot to come in esports. And Sarah, you've written about things like wagering in esports and other developments. What are the things you see as you look into the next 12, 18, 36 months, which is a lifetime in any technology, much less <laughs> esports? What do you see happening? What do you see becoming the next trends in esports? Well, Tom, I think the mention of gambling or wagering in esports is probably exactly what I would point to in answering that question. Mm -hmm. Definitely think that's where a lot of the future is headed. And as long as the leagues continue evolving and we keep fans engaged, which I think will still happen, the betting and also the regulators approve of it, which we're starting to see in piecemeal across different states in the U.S., that's definitely an evolution. And I've definitely spoken to some professionals, sports historians, who've said that the correlation between betting and sports, they go hand in hand. And so one sign that a new sport is evolving is when people bet on it. And we're starting to see that happen. So I think mm -hmm. that's the next frontier, as long as the regulators approve it and it's happening and we'll see more and more of that. Some money to be made or money to exchange hands, that's for sure. Hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I don't know how fast that happens, but certainly with the evolving regulatory environment in the U.S. anyway around sports betting, I think that esports will be a net beneficiary of that. It's already happening at pretty decent scale in other parts of the world, especially in Asia. I think competitive integrity is still an issue. Whenever you don't have a tightly publisher-controlled league, that can certainly be an issue. So that's important. I would say longer-term trends, I think what we're going to see across the board is we're still talking about the underpinning of what esports is, is $170 billion revenue a year industry mm -hmm. with big public companies driving most of it. As they start to invest significantly more into their esports programs and think much more longer-term about how that business will impact their overall business, I think you're also going to see a correlated maturity in the overall industry start to happen. And some of that will be consolidation. One of the interesting COVID impacts that's been happening is it's pretty much wiped out a lot of the early stage investment bubble that was happening in a lot of different point technology solution startups that were building around the esports ecosystem. So I think we're going to lose a bunch of that. I think there'll be further consolidation. Vindex is not even a year old yet. We've done four pretty significant acquisitions already. We're going to do a lot more. I think the rest of the industry, you're going to see some of that too. More consolidation, more investment in infrastructure and scale, and more maturity in a variety of the business models. I think gambling is a huge one, which I agree with Sarah, deeply correlated to mainstream acceptance of any sport is how much gambling there is around it. I think the next step will be what we were just talking about is how do advertisers find ways to better engage and then measure that engagement when they invest in esports and gaming. And I think all those things, following the lead of the publishers taking more control and building more structured leagues, all of that stuff starts to fall in place. So I think we'll see the next few years a pretty rapid maturation of the overall esports ecosystem and a lot of consolidation powering that. Well, Sarah and Mike, this has been a lot of fun and incredibly fascinating, insightful discussion, I think. And I want to really thank you both for taking the time to engage in this conversation around the esports industry with me and sharing your thoughts. 
I'm excited for what the future holds, and I expect both of you to remain prominently involved in this sector and for us to continue these conversations. So thank you again, and thank you all for listening, and be well. Same to you. You're welcome. Had a great time. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Sarah. All information, content, and materials contained in this podcast are for general informational purposes only. This podcast is intended to be a general overview of the subjects discussed and does not create a lawyer-client relationship. Statements and opinions are those of the individual speakers and participants and do not necessarily reflect the policies or opinions of DLA Piper LLP US. The information contained in this podcast is not and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice. No listener should act or refrain from acting with respect to any particular legal matter on the basis of this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. This podcast may qualify as lawyer advertising, requiring notice in some jurisdictions. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. DLA Piper LLP US accepts no responsibility for any actions taken or not taken as a result of this podcast.